0: Well, good afternoon. Would you guys bow your hearts with me and we'll pray before we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that no power of hell can never pluck us from your hand. We thank you for the assurance. We thank you for the faithfulness that we have in you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Come into this world, living on our behalf, dying on our behalf, saving us, and guaranteeing our future. We thank you for the word that teaches us, that guides us, that leads us. And I pray that right now as we go to your word, I pray that you would do what only you can do, Lord, that you would open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. That you would, by your spirit, open our eyes, spiritualize, Lord, to see the truth. And give us faith to believe it. Give us faith to believe it. Give us faith to live it pray for every heart that will hear this. May you be glorified and exalted through the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you were to compile a list of the most consequential events in history, what events would make that list? Many have attempted to compile such lists. And you could think of events that would make that list, such as the birth of Jesus, that changed history. The Age of Enlightenment. The invention of print and press. Fall of the Roman Empire. Think about World War I. World War II. American Revolution. The fall of Berlin Wall. And I'm sure you can name a few others that would be added to this list. Now, what is the most consequential event for Christians? I think all Christians, or most Christians, would agree that no event rivals the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think about the birth of Christ, and the birth of Christ is obviously a great holiday that we celebrate every year. But you see, our redemption and salvation wasn't accomplished because Jesus came into this world. Salvation was accomplished because Jesus died on the cross and was raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God. Every other doctrine that we believe in, which are important, we can talk about election, we talk about regeneration, talk about justification, and other core doctrines that are essential, they are all rooted, and they're all built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now last week, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It was the Resurrection Sunday. But for us Christians, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. The reason we're gathering on Sundays and not on Saturdays is because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. That's why every Sunday is the Lord's day. It's Resurrection Sunday. That's why I want us to talk about resurrection today again. Now my goal today is not to argue that resurrection actually happened. I'm not going to consider and try to disprove every theory that has been proposed to explain away resurrection. What I want to do this afternoon is I want to answer a simple question. If you are a believer, what does the resurrection of Christ mean for you? Now if you're an unbeliever, I want you to answer this question, or I want to answer this question for you. What can the resurrection of Christ mean for you? To answer that question, I want to take you to Romans chapter 8. The title of my sermon this afternoon is Bulletproof Salvation. Bulletproof Salvation. Our primary text will be Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Now here's the proposition that I will defend this afternoon. This is what I want you to understand, and this is what I want you to walk away with. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates His earthly ministry and inaugurates His heavenly one, and thus guarantees your eternal salvation. If I put it another way, We can say it this way. The Father raised the Son as a proof that your salvation has been accomplished. Now, if that's not clear, let's say it this way. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot lose your salvation. This is what I want to argue based on this text. Now, before we jump into verses 33 and 34... I want you to recall the outline of the book of Romans, if you know it. If you ever read the book of Romans, you know from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul establishes the guilt of all people. He says, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, you are as guilty as sin because you have sinned before God. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, Paul answers a simple question. How does God... Make those who are guilty righteous. So from 3.20 to 5.20, he answers that question. He says in in the first three chapters that you all are guilty. No matter where you come from, no matter who you are, you are guilty. And then he says, let me tell you how God justifies those who are guilty. And the answer is simple. You are justified by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, apart from any human contribution. You are saved by faith alone. Now beginning in chapter 6, all the way through the end of chapter 8, Paul answers the following question. How does your faith in Jesus Christ affect your life here and now? So you are saved by faith alone, apart from any works. Now beginning in chapter 6, he says, Now if you, are, have, if you profess to believe, if you profess to know Jesus Christ, how should that affect your life here and now? Now, he concludes this section in verses 31 through 39 by asking seven rhetorical questions that ultimately answer one question Can anyone or anything rob you of your faith in Christ? That's how he concludes that section. Now, the answer is simple No. Correct. You can't, no one and nothing can ever rob you of your salvation. But I want us to look at this text, and I want us to look at the arguments that Paul provides to prove that the answer to this question is no. You see, we don't want to come to scripture with our own ideas, and then try to find Bible verses that justify our beliefs. See, we want the word of God to speak. We don't want to sing the song, someone said wonderful things in the scriptures we see, things that were put there by you and me. Right? No. What we want to do is we want to see what Paul has and what God has for us so that we believe it and we can say, yeah, I believe this because that's what God says. We must let the text speak and we must submit to its authority. As we unpack verses 33 and 34 this afternoon, I want you to see three truths. Three truths. Truth number one. As a believer, you have a fierce accuser. Truth number two, as a believer, you have a fair adjudicator. And truth number three, as a believer, you have a faithful advocate. Join me as I read Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, peril or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord let's begin with the first truth as a believer you have a fierce accuser now I told you that in this section Paul asks seven rhetorical questions I want you to see them in your text. If you look at verse 31, there are two questions there. First, he says, what then shall we say to these things? And then he says, if God is for us, who is against us? The third question is in verse 32, where he says, he who did not spare his own son, but deliver him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all thanks? Question number four is in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, question number five, who is the one who condemns? And the last two questions are in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the final question, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now the text that we'll be looking at starts with the fourth question that Paul asks. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now we know that it is dangerous to jump into the middle of a conversation. Anytime you do that, you'll be in trouble, right? And it is also dangerous to jump in the middle of a section and just pull out a verse and just start explaining it or start talking about it. It is just as dangerous to do that. Someone said that a text without a context is a pretext. Or as another preacher put it, when you take the text out of its context, all you're left with is a con. That's true. So we have to be careful and so that we are not accused of just taking the thing out, out, of, out of its context and just saying, oh, that's what the text means. That's what we have to look, how does Paul get to this text? So let's look at the context. In verses 28 through verse 30, Paul tells us about God's perspective on salvation. You see, God exists outside of time. So for God, there is no yesterday and there is no tomorrow. Everything is now for God. And in verse 28, Paul says that God causes all things to work together for the good of his children. Notice verse 28 says that God causes all things. No, God is not just really good at turning bad things into good things. No, he says God causes. In other words, behind every action, behind everything that happens to you, God either actively or he's passively taking that thing and is using it to make you more like Christ. You see, you will only understand that from the perspective of eternity because you could look at your life right now and you could say, hey, why am I going through this? Why did this thing happen or that thing happen? No, but he says, I have a promise that when you're going to look at your life from the perspective of eternity, I'm going to use every single thing, no matter how bad it is right now. I'm going to use you to make you more like Christ. Now in verses 29 through 30, we have what is known as, as chain of salvation. The chain of salvation. Chain of salvation has five elements in it. All five elements that are written here are in the past tense. Five elements are foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Now if we look at it from our perspective, human perspective, we can say that the first two took place in eternity past. In eternity past, before there was anything made, God foreknew and God predestined you during your lifetime God calls you and he justifies you and then in the eternity future God will glorify you now if you look at the verse notice that these five elements are linked by one word and that word is also the word also indicates that if one of these elements is true about you Everything else has to be true. If God foreknew you, He also predestined you. If He predestined you, He also justified you. If He justified you, He also will call you. And if He calls you, He will glorify you. Listen, nobody falls out anywhere in between. God foreknew you, predestined you, called you, and then you lost it in your God. No. No. No one falls out. Also, also, also. Why is that? Because notice, this text is from the sovereign will of God. It is from God's perspective. Because notice, it's He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. Has nothing to do with you. This is all the work of God. God is the one who is active. He is the author of your salvation. And He is the one who accomplishes it. Now, so far as God is concerned... Your salvation is a done deal. Now in verse 31, Paul asks a question. Well, if that is really so, what shall we say to these things? If that is true, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? I mean, does it really mean that I can do nothing to undo it? Does it really mean that no one can take it away from me? Does it really mean that God will never change his mind about the salvation that he has given to me? Does it really mean that? And in verse 32, Paul answers that question. He says, think about it. If while you were God's enemy, if while you were hating God, running away from him, engaging your evil deeds, if while you were still helpless, if while you were still in your sin, God took the greatest gift that he had, his own son, and he has given it to you while you were in that state. Do you think now that you are his child, he's going to turn away from you? Of course not. Of course not. If he gave you the greatest gift, everything beyond that is... It's foolish to say that now all of a sudden God is going to change his mind. No. That's why in verse 32 he answers that question, if God has done that for you while you were still in your sin... Now that you are His child, you are guaranteed that every other lesser gift you will receive from Him. God will never turn on you. That's the point. Now does that mean that no one will ever try to destroy your faith? No, you will have guys in white shirts, on bikes, coming to you. Right? Trying to destroy your faith in Christ. You'll have Jehovah's false witnesses coming to your door too. Trying to convince you that Jesus is not God. Trying to convince you that... By the way, do you know that they believe that there's only 144,000 people who are going to be in heaven? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just do a little math and think about the billions of people on the planet right now and the billions of people who live before us and those who will live after us, your chances of being in heaven are <clears throat> slim to none. Right? It's worse than buying a lottery ticket. Right? Does, is somebody going to try to destroy your faith? Of course. False teachers will come. That's why you have a lot of warnings in scripture that there will be those who will try to destroy your faith. Notice, God does not promise smooth sailing for you. But God promises that you will definitely get to the destination. So he's saying. You will get to that part where you're glorified. If you have been foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, you will definitely be glorified. Now this brings us to our text verse 33, Paul asks the question, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now first, we have to answer the question, Who are the elect? Who are the elect? Now these are the ones that are mentioned in verse 29. The first step in this chain of salvation is those whom he foreknew. Now foreknowledge has to do with election. The word foreknow does not mean that God merely looked through the corridors of history and He looks at it and He says, Oh, I see Tino's going to believe in me. I'm going to choose Tino. That's how people look at it. For knowledge, as if it is something that God just sees and He acts upon the knowledge that He receives just by looking to the end of history. For knowledge has to do with election. For knowledge means that God determines what will take place in the future. Not only he sees what takes place in the future, although he does see that. But God determines that. And I can prove that to you. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is how Peter opens his letter. Probably not the way you want to open the letter. Because you want to stay away from things that are controversial. But notice how Peter opens. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, first thing he's going to talk about is election, chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in a foolish measure. Notice the connection between foreknowledge and chosen. You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, I want, you to use, uh, I want you to look at the same word that appears later on in the same chapter. Skip down to verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, knowing that you were redeemed, not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way inherited, way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now look at verse 20. For he was foreknown, same word, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. Notice it says Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, if the word foreknown means that God just simply looks through the history and he sees what happens here, notice what this verse says. If that is true, then one day God is looking through timeline of history. And then, wow, I guess Jesus is going to die. Okay, now it all makes sense. I guess we figured out how we're going to save these people. You see, if foreknowledge simply means to see what happens ahead, God's like, man, and I was thinking, how are we going to save these people? I get it. Jesus died. Is that what happened? No. That's not how foreknowledge works. Listen to Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. No, God did not just see that Jesus would die. The Father has devised a plan and the Father has determined that the Son would die. It was according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Now, if that was for Jesus Christ, if He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, the same meaning applies to believers. When it says that you were foreknown before the foundation of the world, that means the Father has chosen those who would belong to Him. God has chosen to set His love on certain people according to His sovereign will. Now, you take that and you plug it into our verse here. So, here's the question that Paul's asking. If the Father has chosen you to be His own, can someone bring a legitimate charge against you? When verse 33 says here, who will bring charge against God's elect? He says, If the Father from eternity past chose you to be His own, can somebody charge you with sin? No. Now, who would dare to go to the throne room of God and bring a charge against God's elect? There's one who actually does. And one who does it all the time. Mm -hmm. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, we are given a glimpse of the future. And we're given a glimpse of a future battle that will take place in heaven, where Satan is once for all cast out of heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of all, who is called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom and our kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Devil has a full-time job of accusing you before the Father. The oldest book in the Bible, it gives us a glimpse of this. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read a few verses here from the book of Job. Book of Job, we read this, Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to, the pre- to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then answer then Satan answered the Lord. "Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face." See though Satan was cast out of heaven, when he sinned initially, we see from this that he still has access to God. And when he shows up with the angels, God initiates conversation with him. And God says to him, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan doesn't say, Man, no, I don't know who that is. <laughs> no, of course he knows. He knows exactly who he is. How else would he know that there is a hedge around this guy? Because he tried to penetrate it many times and he was unsuccessful. He says, yeah, you have put a hedge around him. Now this is a classic example of Satan accusing believers. Now Satan here, notice he accuses first Job. He says, Job worships you and Job loves you because you give him things. You're buying worshipers for yourself. Job's faith is not genuine. And not only does he accuse Job here... But he's accusing God here. God, you are not worthy to be worshipped. You are not worthy to be praised. you got to buy worshippers for yourself. And that's why you give stuff to Job so that he would worship you. Notice he accuses Job. He accuses God. And Job has no clue about this conversation. And then all hell breaks loose. And you know, by the time the story ends, we know that Job's faith is vindicated. Because notice what was at stake here. It wasn't that Only Job's faithfulness was at stake here. It was God's reputation was at stake here. And God sustained the faith of Job to prove that his faith was actually genuine. Job's faith was genuine and God deserves to be worshipped. Now, in the midst of all this, Job is clueless throughout this whole time. But this is on display that you have a fierce accuser. Not only did Job have an accuser, you have a fierce accuser. And notice there is one thing to be accused by a man, by your friend, but this is an accusation of Satan. It's not that something posts something on Facebook around you, about you, or that, you know, somebody spreads a rumor at work about you. No, we're talking about here Satan accusing you before God. Now notice, this is not just an accusation. Oh, I heard something. No. When we're talking about this language, what it says here, verse 33, who will bring charge against God's elect? We're talking about legal language. This is a courtroom language. This word is used in Acts chapter 19. You remember that story when there was a riot in Ephesus. And you read this in Acts chapter 19 verse 38. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and pro are available. Let them bring charges against one another. We're talking about legal language here. The question is not whether someone or Satan or people can accuse you of doing something wrong. Yeah, there are plenty of stuff that they can accuse of. They don't even have to make it up, right? But here's the question. Can anyone go to the Supreme Court of Heaven and file charges against you that would not be dismissed as frivolous? Can anyone do that? That's what's at stake here. That's the question here. So we looked at this first question, and you can see that you have a fierce accuser who is seeking your demise every single day with his accusations before God. He's filing his charges against you day and night. Can these charges stand? Well, let's consider the second truth. As a believer, you have a fair adjudicator. Now here's a scene that you should... Picture when you're reading these verses. We have a prosecutor who's the devil. He's running into a court of heaven before the judge of the universe and he's filing his charges against you. God is the judge. He's the supreme court. He's the chief justice of the universe. He's standing there in court and devil is filing his charges against you. I you know what this verse says here? As he's filing his charges, the Supreme Court of Heaven, God Himself, says, listen, I've ruled on this case already. I ruled on it. This case is dismissed. I've ruled on this case. You see, the issue here is that he's coming and he's filing his charges against someone who was foreknown, who was predestined, who was called, and who was justified and who will be glorified. No, the judge himself has ruled on this case already. Listen, it's like a defeated prosecutor who still wants to win his case, and the judge has ruled on it, Supreme Court has ruled on it, but he's continuing to follow in his appeals. No, 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 but maybe consider this fact, but maybe consider that, but maybe you have overlooked this, and just like, okay, we're ruled on this. There is no court higher than this court that can overrule my decision already. I have ruled on this case. That's why you read verse 33. Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. God is the one who justifies. I have justified that person you are accusing. Now what does the word justify mean? There are two main uses of it in the New Testament. The first use, to justify, means to demonstrate to be righteous. To demonstrate to be righteous. Listen to these verses. Luke 16, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of man. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. He says, you are trying to demonstrate yourself to be righteous before men. But God knows your heart. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to me, what is written in the law? How does it read? And he answered, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Notice, this guy wanted to demonstrate to everyone that he is actually righteous. Wishing to justify yourself. So the first meaning of the word justified means to demonstrate to be righteous. The second meaning is to declare to be righteous. Declare to be righteous. Luke chapter 7 verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. Or if you were to literally translate that, they justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. They declared that God is righteous. Romans chapter 4 verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now this is the use of that word in our text. Justification is what God does in regards to you. In justification, when God justifies a person, He declares that your sins have been forgiven. All of your sins. Your past, your present, and your future. And that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to your account. That's what justification does. Notice, justification does not change you. Justification changes the way God looks at you. There's a huge difference between that. When God declares someone righteous, it does not mean that that person is instantly transformed into an angel. No. You are still the same person. But justification changes the way God looks at you. Think of a famous case. O.J. Simpson. People have their ideas about what actually happened there. But when jury came with their verdict, and when the verdict was read in the court of law, and the verdict was not guilty. Did that change any of the facts of the case? No. Did that change who OJ was? No. But what it did change, the way court looks at him now. And the court has to dismiss him. The court has to let him go. Because he is declared not guilty. Notice when God justifies a person, it does not change you instantaneously. But it changes the way God now looks at you. And when God looks at you, He doesn't just say, Oh, He's not guilty. No. He says that all of your sins are forgiven and you have righteousness of God imputed to your account. Not only are you not guilty, you are absolutely righteous. God looks at you as if you lived 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father. That's what happens in justification. Because Jesus lived the perfect life on your behalf, then in, when you are saved, He wipes away your sin, and He gives you the, justice, the, the righteousness of Christ, and God looks at you as if you lived the life of Jesus for 33 years. Now we might ask, how does God declare us righteous? And He declares us righteousness, righteous because we place our faith in Jesus Christ. You're in Romans 8. Go back to Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified, how? By faith. faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, faith is a means through which sinners are justified. It is faith in the finished work of Christ. Christ was our substitute. He lived the life that we could not live. And He died the death that we deserve to die. So that when you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Christ, His righteousness is imputed to your account. Therefore, when God justifies you, He looks at you like He looks at His Son, His perfect Son. Here's how Paul summarizes this. If you go back a few more chapters, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all who have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. So that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice, God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He is just because someone pays for that sin, namely Christ. And He is justifier because He forgives sin and He imputes the righteousness of Christ to those who believe, to those who have faith. Now take all this and bring it back to Romans chapter 8. And the question that Paul is answering again, can anyone bring a charge against one whom God has justified? No. No. Because God the Father has accepted the sacrifice of Christ, He accepts those who place their faith in Christ. The Father is the chief justice in this case and He makes the final call. There is no legitimate charge that could stand against you because all have been paid for. All of the sins have been paid for because the Father poured His wrath on His Son. He's never going to pour that wrath on you. No, it has been taken care of. His justice was satisfied on the cross and you are accepted because of your faith in Christ. So you have a fair judge. You have a judge who's not going to punish you the second time, because he has already punished someone for your sin. He is just, and he is a justifier. Now, if all this is true, we can close our Bibles and go home, maybe sing a final song. But Paul's not done yet, so let's keep going. Notice, not only do you have a fierce accuser, you have a fair adjudicator. Notice, as a believer, you have a faithful advocate. Look at verse 34. It says... Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, I love how Trinitarian this passage is. Because you have every member of the Trinity involved in this. Notice the Spirit of God is involved. Look at verse 26, same passage. Verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God in heaven is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. The Spirit of God is on your side. Now if that's not enough, the Father is on your side. Look what well, we talked about verses 28 through 32. The Father was the one who foreknew, who predestined, who called, who justified, and who will glorify you. The Spirit is on your side. The Father is on your side. And now He says, the Son is on your side. Jesus Christ is on your side. Listen, if Trinity is for you, who's going to condemn you? Damn. Nobody's going to do that. <laughs> Paul asks, who is the one who condemns? Now, condemn is opposite of justify. If to justify means to declare someone righteous, to condemn means to declare somebody worthy of punishment. Can a believer be condemned? Paul already answered that question. Look at chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus took on all the condemnation so that you and I will never, ever be condemned. Simply put, because of what Jesus Christ accomplished during his earthly ministry, and because of his ongoing heavenly ministry, the elect cannot be condemned. Now Specifically, Paul gives four reasons. Four reasons why elect can never be condemned. Reason number one. Jesus Christ died. Again, look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Now, Jesus didn't just die. He died for a specific reason. The book of Romans explains that. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions. Notice, Jesus didn't just die. He died for a purpose to deliver us from our transgressions. He was perfect, and we were sinners. He died in our place. He drank the cup. He drank the wrath that was due to you and me. Peter puts it this way, First Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Notice, Jesus died, and when He died, He offered Himself as a payment for our sins. Notice Paul doesn't stop there. Number two, he says, Jesus Christ was raised. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. See, more than just dying, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, this is a hinge on which this whole passage turns. Because if there was no resurrection, nothing else is possible, right? If there was no resurrection, then election is irrelevant, Predestination is inconsequential, calling is ineffectual, justification is immoral, and glorification is impossible. None of these other things can happen if there was no resurrection. Christianity would have folded before it even started. But Christ was raised from the dead. And because He was raised from the dead, He was vindicated. Everything that He ever said and everything that He ever did was actually true because He walked out of that tomb on the third day. You see, the Father raised the Son to demonstrate to the world that the sacrifice that He had offered was accepted. The salvation of sinners was accomplished. Now those who were foreknown and predestined will actually be called and justified and in the future will be glorified. Because when Jesus Christ cried on the cross, it is finished, the proof of that was Resurrection Sunday. When Jesus walked out of the tomb and says, yes, it is actually finished. Jesus' earthly ministry guarantees your eternity. Because He has done it on your behalf. But Paul goes even further. Number three, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. Again, verse 34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Now, why is that significant? You see, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God because of the work that he has accomplished. In Philippians chapter 2, we read about Jesus' humiliation, and we read about his exaltation. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, in this case, death on the cross is referring to the whole work of Christ. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To accomplish salvation. To redeem sinners. So Jesus humbled himself to the point where he went to the cross and he died the death for sinners. Verse 9 says this. For this reason. For what reason? Because of what Jesus did. Because of His accomplished work on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him. And bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice, based on this passage. The reason why Jesus was exalted, because of the work of salvation that He has accomplished. A question for you. If Jesus was exalted... Because he saved sinners. And now a bunch of those sinners are losing their salvation and therefore not saved. What happens to Jesus? He is at the right hand of God because he actually saved some. And they're actually not saved, so he didn't actually save them. Should he step down? Did he get like a trophy, participation trophy? No. Notice he says, Jesus is exalted because of the work that he did. The work that he did actually guaranteed salvation of sinners. And if those sinners are lost somewhere in between, then Jesus actually didn't save them. Then he shouldn't be exalted. Then he shouldn't sit there at the right hand of the Father. But notice that is impossible. He's at the right hand of God and he sat down. Why? Because his work was finished. We talked about this before that in the tabernacle and in the temple, there were no chairs, there were no benches, because priests never sat down because their work was never finished. They kept on offering sacrifices again and again and again. Why? Because people kept sinning again and again and again. Because those sacrifices, animal sacrifices, they temporarily covered sin, but they never actually atoned for sin. But when Christ offered one sacrifice for all time, He atoned for all the sin of people, those who lived in the Old Testament and those who will live to the day that He returns. And he paid for those sins, and that's why when he accomplished the work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, because his work was finished. His work was finished. The salvation of sinners was accomplished. Now, if that was not enough, last thing, number four, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Look at verse 34 again. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. When his earthly ministry was over, his heavenly one just began. Mm -hmm. Because he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now you have a faithful attorney. You have an advocate with the Father who intercedes on your behalf. Again, think of that scene in heaven. The judge the father is sitting on the throne. A defeated prosecutor, devil runs in, and he says, I got charges against Max. And he did this, and he did that, and he did the other. And your advocate, your attorney, gets up. He shows his hand to the father, he says, yeah, I paid for that too. And the father says, yeah, and I forgave that too. The record has been wiped clean. All I see is the righteousness of Christ. Who will bring charge against God's elect? Who will do anything or say anything that will stand? Nobody. Nobody. That's why we're saying that your salvation is bulletproof. That's why Tony says you are nine feet tall and bulletproof. That's why. Because the Father is for you, the Spirit is for you, the Son is for you. Nothing else we can say. Notice what Paul says next, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? I mean, maybe, maybe it's going to get like, like really hard. It's going to be just so hard that you're just going to fall out. Verse 37, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now people will read this and they say, Sure, no one can take salvation from you. But you can lose it yourself. Really? You don't fall into this category of any other created thing. That includes you. That includes everything that exists, any other created thing. God is for you, and no other created thing can ever separate you from God. Notice, God wants you to have assurance of your salvation. God wants you to trust Him. God wants you to believe Him. See, this doctrine sets you free from guilt. Why? Because all of your sins are forgiven. This doctrine sets you free from fear because God will never turn on you. God is for you. This is a doctrine. This, this is a cause for great joy and celebration. I want to conclude our time with just this final observation. You see, the struggle with assurance of salvation is often a result. Of having your focus in the wrong place. That's why many people struggle with assurance of salvation. You see, if you spend most of your time gazing at yourself and only once in a while glancing at Jesus, you will struggle with assurance. Know why? Because you're a sinner. Yes, you're a saved sinner, redeemed sinner, but sinner nonetheless. What is the solution? The solution is to gaze at Christ and only occasionally glance at yourself to see whether you trust in Christ. Why? Because the security lies in His work. The security lies in what He has accomplished on your behalf. That's what gives assurance. The assurance is not that I'm this great person who never sins, who never falls, who never does anything wrong. No, that's not the assurance. The assurance is that Jesus paid it all. That Jesus took care of all my sins. That Jesus guarantees my salvation. And because I believe in Jesus, I have eternal life. That's where assurance comes from. It comes from believing the wo- in promises of God. Believing in the word of God. Martin Luther, the reformer, he struggled with accusations of Satan. I close with his exhortation. He writes this, in one of his commentaries. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore damned. We should, say, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. And I reply, no, for I fly to Christ, who gave himself for my sin. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me to heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say that I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapon against you, so that when with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ my Redeemer, on whose shoulders, and not mine, lies all my sins. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me but comfort me immeasurably. Now take that bullet, put it in your gun, (laughs) and when you have those accusations come your way, use it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you have done, and for the work that you are doing even today. As you stand on our behalf before the Father, and you advocate for us, Lord, we praise you. We praise you. I pray that you would give us that assurance. I pray for those who are here who are not saved. The worst thing that they could have is assurance that they are saved. Lord, if someone here is not trusting in Christ, may this be the day when they believe, when they trust, and when they have assurance and they can just go home, sleep, because they're secured in your arms. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. amen.